Well, I thought since it's Palm Sunday, we should talk about Jesus. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, so that's what we'll do today. That video I thought was great when, when Pilate said to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And the way they worded it on the video was, I'm not that type of king. See, if we had lived that in those days, and we were Jewish, and we had gone to the synagogue and, and been taught all the Old Testament and knew the Old Testament prophecies, but we were living under this oppressive Roman government like they were, they wanted more than anything a king. They were looking for this promised Messiah that was going to deliver them um, politically. They were looking for an earthly king to come set up his kingdom. And Jesus said, I'm not that kind of king. So I named the uh, title of this message, Not Your Typical King. And what I wanted to show you today, I thought we'd just focus on Jesus. And first, we're just going to talk about what kind of king was he? What was he like? We're just going to look at his nature. It's just some, some scripture that talk about his character and his nature. The second thing we're going to look at is what was his purpose? What did he say he came to do? And the third thing is what was his plan? What was his plan when he came? What is his plan now? And what is his plan for all of eternity? And so those are our three main points, but the biggest thing I want you to go away from here is evaluating your own heart, looking at your own life, and saying, is Jesus my king? Is he my king? What evidence is there in my life that he's my ruler and he's my master? So that's where we're going. Now, this is the type of king they were looking for, okay? Uh, on a war horse with big sword, flanked by the army. But this is the king they got. If you can see that picture, Jesus coming in on a donkey, not a war horse. And his, uh, the people that were praising him, that were beside him, they didn't have swords. They had palm branches. And Jesus was fulfilling this prophecy in Zechariah 9 that says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. That's how Jesus came. Well, I know if you've been in church very long, you've heard this story. You know about the triumphal entry. But until just recently when I was reading this in Luke, I had Lath read through verse 40. And that's usually what we're familiar with on Palm Sunday. But I want to encourage us today to look at verse 41. The very next verse. It says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Now in that picture, he, I don't know if you can see well enough, but it looks like he's, he's smiling and he's very peaceful. But this says, 
as he came down the Mount of Olives and he could see all of Jerusalem spread out ahead of him, he wept. And that word in the Greek doesn't mean that he just had some tears rolling down his face. The word actually means he wailed. Can you imagine that? Do you picture that when you think of the triumphal entry? A king coming on a donkey, wailing, weeping. Why was he crying? That's really interesting, just got my attention um, these last couple weeks. And I um, want to just quickly look at Luke 13, 34. I'm going to get, show you three reasons that I found in Luke that he was weeping. Luke 13, verse 34. This is Jesus. And... This is actually after a confrontation he had with the Pharisees. And he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Then get this. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Look at his heart for those who were out to get him, (laughs) those who were always in conflict with him. Also look at Luke 19, 14. This is right before the story of the triumphal entry, and I'm just picking out one verse out of this parable he told. But as he was telling this parable, part of the parable was about a nobleman who sent his son uh, into a country, and these people said to the son, we will not have this man to rule over us. That was a parable about them and about Jesus and how they did not accept him. And then verse 44 in Luke 19 also tells that um, he says he predicts to them the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in A.D. 70. And he says, not one stone will be left upon another. The whole city is going to be destroyed. And he says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Why was Jesus weeping? They didn't, he was feeling their, the sorrow of knowing the people he came for rejected him. And I don't believe it was a personal pain so much as he felt sorrow and pain for what he knew they were going to experience because they said, we will not have this man to rule over us. Pretty sobering. Jesus wept. Well, we're going to look at what this king was like. And... um, I was going to share with you a habit that I've done that's been really helpful to me over I don't know how many years is that in November and December, I commit to read through all four Gospels because I want my heart to be focused on Jesus during Christmas season and not get distracted by all the other stuff. So that's what I do in November, December. But in March, I always just choose one of the Gospels to kind of dig into more Because no matter how long I've walked with Jesus, there's still so much I don't understand. So much more to learn about him. So 
As I've been going through Luke, I went through it this month with the purpose of looking for two things. I wanted to pay attention to what people called Jesus. How did they, um, what was the name they gave him? How did they refer to Jesus? And then the second thing I looked for is how did Jesus respond to sinners? Now, what you're not going to hear in this message, because it would be a whole nother message, is how Jesus responded to the religious people, to the scribes and Pharisees and zealots. Um, he was harsh with them, admittedly, because they thought they, had, they were the religious leaders and they were bent on making sure everybody knew that there were 631 rules they needed to be following. And they felt like they, they were enforcers of the rules and make sure the traditions and the rituals are hung on to. So the way he treated them is totally opposite than the way he treated a leper or the women that other people called sinners, the adulterers and prostitutes, or the tax collectors, which everyone despised. So we're going to look at the way he treated the lost. So what I thought was fascinating, I kept a notebook as I'm reading through it and wrote down every time somebody referred to Jesus, how they referred to him. And what I found out to me was interesting. I, uh, when Jesus talked about himself, he always referred to himself as the son of man. Now what got my attention is, who was Jesus? He was the son of God. He could have arrived on the scene and said, hey, I'm the son of God, you better listen to me. He could have taken that title and that would have given him a lot of authority, wouldn't it? But he came and continually, continually referred to himself as the son of man to relate to us, I believe, to, to be on our level. Isn't that something? Also, his disciples and others who were seeking him, they called him Lord. Now, I think it's important. I do not study Greek. I am, have never studied Greek. I have a great software program that if I put my cursor over a word, it'll pull up the Greek word and the definition. And um, so the word for, the Greek word for Lord is kurios. And what it means is more important than we don't need to speak Greek, <laughs> but we need to know what it meant to them. A Lord was someone who is in authority, who has control and power over others. Got that? A Lord is someone who is absolute authority, in control, has power over others as a ruler. A Lord essentially meant he was a master and you were his servants. He owned you. And so it's interesting to me that his disciples always referred to him as Lord. The Pharisees, though, the scribes, the other Jewish leaders, they simply called him teacher. They saw him go into the synagogues, wherever he was, whatever city, village he was at, he would go into the synagogue and teach, and that's all they ever saw him as. They always called him teacher. Now, this one got my attention. I had never noticed this. The demons, you know what they called him? The son of God. They know who he is. 
Jesus was called the king of the Jews at his trial and crucifixion, but only in a mocking, demeaning way. So that's Jesus and Luke. And what I want to do now is the first thing we're just going to look at several scriptures. I don't expect you to keep up in your Bibles. I've put them on the screen. Today's a little different than what I usually do. I just want us to look at quite a few scriptures. First of all, what is this king like? What is his nature? What is his character? When he first time he went into a synagogue to teach, in Luke 4.22, it says, all spoke well of him, and they were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And then just 10 verses later, it says they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. So you got that? They're astonished. They're amazed because his words are both gracious and bold. Isn't that cool? (laughs) He was also very compassionate. In Matthew 9.36, it says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Kind of like we saw him weeping as he comes into Jerusalem. He feels such pain for his people. And in Luke 7.13, a widow's only son has died. And when the Lord saw her, it says his heart overflowed with compassion. As he said to her, Don't cry. And then he raised her son from the dead. What got my attention about that word compassion, maybe because that's what I feel from him, I need that so much. Um, I looked through all four Gospels and I found ten different instances, ten different circumstances where it says Jesus was compassionate. Jesus had compassion on these people. Jesus' heart overflowed with compassion. He was a very compassionate king, not your typical king that ruled with brutality and force. He's a very compassionate king. The next one I notice is that one of my favorite verses, Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Notice what Jesus says about himself there. He's very gentle and humble. Is this your king? Is this the way, the relationship you have with him? Compassion, gentle, humble, kind. Jesus was always respectful to others. What I love about this, he's saying, you know, just learn from me. Are you feeling burdened? I sure remember a time when I was just working as hard as I could for the Lord. I wanted to do everything I could. I said yes to everybody. And this started feeling like a burden. And one day, I read the, a verse, and I, it's in Second Chronicles somewhere. It says, because you are not, did not serve me in joy, your enemies are who you will serve. And that hit me like, I am burdened. I'm not serving in joy. What is wrong with this picture? And Jesus said to me, hmm, you're carrying your own yoke, your own burden. Come learn from me. 
I'm gentle and humble. And when you learn from me how to, how to work for me, how to serve me, how to love me, you'll see that that burden isn't heavy. And, uh, and that is absolutely true. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. So he wants us to learn and trust him. He's gentle and humble when he teaches us. Jesus is also very loving and forgiving. Of course, we know this, but I'm sure you understand Luke 23, 34. Where was Jesus when he said this statement? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can you picture where Jesus was when he said that? On the cross, absolutely. And do you ever put yourself in the story? Sometimes I try to put myself in the story. What if I had been one of those at the past, at the triumphal entry, with palm branches, so excited, here's our king, our deliverer, celebrating, here he is. This is who Zechariah said he would be. He's going to be riding on a donkey. This has to be him. This is the Messiah. And then as the week went on, I can just imagine being confused. Like, what? why isn't he bringing in the army and conquering, taking over this evil kingdom? And then to stand and watch him be mocked, spit upon, beaten, whipped, and then nailed to a wooden cross. Can you imagine that? Like, what would your mind be thinking? You know, the disciples, they deserted him. And I think I get it. I understand that. I would feel so confused. But you know what Jesus said? To the people who are yelling, crucify him, to his disciples who deserted him, he's saying, oh, Father. He didn't say, give them what they deserve. He didn't say, I know vengeance is yours. He didn't say, these people are not worthy of this. I'm going to call in the legions of angels to save me, which he could have. He said to the people who put him on the cross, who were mocking him and yelling, crucify him, he said, Father, forgive them. What kind of king is that? And we know that he loves us because he sent, God sent Jesus to die for us while we were yet sinners, while we are still sinners. Isn't that good news? Okay, so that's a little bit about his character. Now, what did he say he came to do? When Jesus came the first time, his purpose was to save. Now, probably a lot of you are very familiar with John 3.16, and maybe have it memorized. We could maybe all say it together. Well, let's just read this all together. Will you read it with me? We're going to read 16 and 17, okay? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. As I say, if you've memorized 316, be sure you got 317 memorized right behind it. Isn't that great? He didn't come to condemn us. And if you notice how he responds to people 
in the Gospels. He never says to somebody who needs his help, to the unclean leper that nobody would have anything to do with, or to the woman caught in adultery. He never says, yeah, I could help you as soon as you do this. You know what I notice too is that sometimes, he, actually a lot of times, he doesn't even wait for them to ask for help. He just graciously gives them what they need, whether it's healing, being freed from demons. He's so gracious. None of us deserve it, and he doesn't expect us to. He came to save. He came the first time as Savior, but he will come the second time as judge. And in John 12, 47 and 48, this is what Jesus said. Now, the first part of this 47, he's speaking to the people in his time zone, okay? So he's speaking to them, and 48 talks about the future. So 47 says, I will not judge those who hear me but don't obey me, for I have come to save the world and not judge it. Got that? But all who reject me and my message will be judged on the day of judgment by the truth. That I have spoken. This is, this is a key principle to understand about the gospel. The good news. Do you get it? He doesn't judge those who hear but don't obey. Now. Do people reap consequences for their sin? Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, he doesn't judge those because he came to save the world and not to judge it. He doesn't judge me. I am not condemned when I fail him. I think he rather expects it, that sometimes we're going to fail. Maybe daily. <laughs> but he says, anyone who rejects me and my message, there will be a day that they will stand before him and then he will be his judge. Every person who has ever lived will be at that judgment seat. And then we will be judged by the truth we have heard. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the more you know about the Bible, the more you can be held accountable for. The more you hear, I hope when you come on Sundays or when you're reading your quiet time, you're responding to what you read and not just storing it up as head knowledge. Because we will be judged by what we know and whether we've lived according to what we know. The second time. Now is the time of grace. Isn't that right? It's the church age, the time of grace from then till the day of judgment. We live under God's grace. His purpose was to restore us. When Jesus came, he knew we were broken. Humanity was broken. And he went into the temple one day and picked up the scroll of Isaiah and he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. The time of the Lord's favor has come. 
This is the time of God's grace, the time of God's patience, the time that he is willing to receive sinners like us. And after Jesus read this in the temple, he sat down and said, now this this scripture has been fulfilled in your sight. This is what he came to do to restore us. And Jesus was focused on the purpose of pursuing people. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. He didn't just sit in the synagogue and say, if anybody needs something, I guess they better just come to me. They'll know where to find me. He went out seeking those who were oppressed, those who were blind, those who needed help. He pursued people like that. And as I thought about this, I thought, I wonder what it really means, those who are lost. Who does, who does Jesus, th- you know, who is he thinking about? I liked one Bible dictionary I read. It said, the lost are those who are on the path to destruction. So you see somebody on this path that you know is leading to destruction. What do you do? Jesus went after him. He went to seek out those people. That was his purpose. And he also came to give, just to give of himself. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. Have you known any other king that did that? Jesus is not your typical king. So what is his plan? What was his plan then? now and for eternity. This is interesting. Um, Pilate, they had brought Jesus to Pilate because Pilate was in charge of the government under which um, he had the authority whether to decide if Jesus should be treated as a criminal. And Pilate said to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Can you, can you understand Pilate's confusion? I mean, isn't that a weird answer? If your kingdom is not of this world, like, are you an alien? Like, really, what? What? This doesn't make sense. And so Pilate said, are you a king? And Jesus said, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I've come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. That's where Jesus said, I'm not that kind of king. See, again, they, they can only see earthly realities. And that's the type of king they thought he was. That his sole purpose was to make life better, to deliver them from oppression. But what kind of kingdom did Jesus set up? It wasn't an earthly kingdom. He came to set up his kingdom in our hearts. A spiritual kingdom to prepare us to live forever in his heavenly kingdom. And we see that when Jesus comes the second time, he comes as a conquering king. The first time, not a conquering king. The second time, 
a conquering king. Revelation 19 is a long passage, but just try to imagine what this might look like. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Got that? Not a donkey. <laughs> the second time, a white war horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads upon the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's what we have to look forward to. Amen? Amen. So what I said, those three points, what kind of king is he? What was his character? Gentle, kind, humble, respectful, compassionate. What was his purpose? To save, not to condemn. To restore us. What is his plan? Not an earthly kingdom. Prepare us for a heavenly kingdom. Build his kingdom inside our hearts. I'm going to share with you Romans 10, 9, and 10. And I want you to think about when can you pinpoint a time in your life that you said to Jesus, I want you to be my king. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with your, mouth, with your heart you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess and are saved. Now, I've had the privilege of counseling a few people who were raised in church. And they've shared with me, Barb, why don't I feel sure of my salvation? Why don't I have assurance of my salvation? These people, it's been several, have grown up in church, in Sunday school, maybe even going to Christian school, and they were told Invite Jesus into your heart or ask Jesus to be your Savior. But somehow they'd never heard or somehow missed that Jesus came to be our Lord. Now remember what Lord means? Our master, our owner. And I really think that if you don't have assurance of salvation, check your heart. Evaluate your heart. Have you ever bowed your heart in submission to King Jesus and said, you are my Lord. You are my master. I am your servant. My life is yours. I live for you. I am under your authority. I will make my decisions and choices based on what you want. I will spend my days living for your purposes and your glory. Can you think of a time you've done that? 
When that is the prayer of your heart, you'll have assurance of salvation. When you declare with your mouth and by your actions live as if Jesus is your Lord, you will stand out from the crowd. Jesus is our master. So is he your king? One day, we talked about that day when Jesus comes back again. Everyone then will declare that Jesus is Lord. Everyone then will see that he truly is the king. Although at that point, it's too late to change your mind. Philippians 2 says, Therefore God has exalted him to the highest place and given him a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. I just want to close by saying this, just this morning this occurred to me and I love my um, Bible software because I had heard this and I maybe have said it one time but kind of forgot. I went back to Luke, you know, thinking about how we're told to ask Jesus to be our Savior. I went back to Luke and said, how many times in the book of Luke is Jesus called Savior? Two. One of those is at his birth. Christ, you know, unto us is born this day as Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Two times in Luke. How many times is Jesus referred to as Lord in the book of Luke? Ninety-eight I looked at the Gospels. How many times is Jesus referred to as Savior in the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. None at all in Matthew. None in Mark. Two in Luke. One in John. Three times. Now, get this picture. In all of the New Testament, how many times is Jesus referred to as Savior? 24. And how many times is he referred to as Lord? 748. That gives me some concern. Does it you? Do you only know him as your Savior? Of course, absolutely, he is our Savior. Only he could deliver us from our sin. But I think it's pretty well obvious from those numbers that he came not just to be our Savior, but to be our Lord. Let's close in prayer. King Jesus, you are a king like no other. We praise you that you give us the choice of whether we're going to make you Lord or not. You don't rule by force. We don't have to submit to you. 
But Lord, I pray that you would give each of us a heart that wants to submit to you. I wonder, Jesus, when you look at the church, the worldwide church and Church of America, our church, do you weep for us? Do we live as if we make our own decisions? We would never say we don't want you to rule over us, but do we seek you to find out how you want to rule us? Lord, I pray today that if there are any here who have never in their memory thought of a time that they have bowed their heart before you and said, Jesus, you are my Lord and I submit to you and my life is yours. Lord, would you stir their hearts today? Would you open the eyes of their heart and give them the understanding that you said you would draw all men to yourself? Would you do that today? We want to declare that you are Lord of HCC. And we want what you want, not what we want. We want to live for your glory and make your name great in Harrisonville. So this week, Holy Week, keep our focus. Draw us to yourself. Help us not just to read, and, but to evaluate our own hearts before you to see if we truly are letting you be our king. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your patience and your grace and your mercy and your love. Can't imagine life without you. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.